Good afternoon and welcome to the Serious Weekly Seminar Series at Purdue University. Today, it is our pleasure to welcome Dr. David Benson. Dr. Benson is currently a professor of Security and Strategic Studies at the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies at Air University in Montgomery, Alabama. His talk today is entitled, Stop Selling Cybersecurity Short, Cybersecurity as a Component of National Power. David, thanks for joining us and take it away. Hey everyone, I wish I could be there with you. I wish I could see you all, um, uh, but I'm very excited to be here. Uh, very excited to have the opportunity to talk to you guys. Um, there's a few things to just sort of, I don't say get out of the way, but give you a little bit of uh, perspective. My, I'm actually a political scientist by training. Um, I finished uh, my PhD at the University of Chicago um, in 2015 when I went off, but I didn't have an appointment in the computer science department at Southern Methodist University. I'm all, I also come from a background where computers, programming and things like that um, were part of my growing up time. And so I kind of come by my geekiness naturally. At the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies, I am, uh, we don't have official designations, but I am the unofficial uh, cybersecurity and information uh, power uh, professor, and we teach Air Force officers and other military officers. Um, we've had even one um, civilian student, uh, but uh, we prepare them to go take positions as strategists. And so strategists in this case means specific jobs that you can take in the military, and those jobs are related to international strategy. Uh, so I spent a lot of time talking to, working with, and around um, military folks. Um, that said, oh, uh, I would like to proffer my geek bona fides. This is one of those times when having uh, a way to see if you were laughing would be helpful. Um, but the, uh, the uh, I really do use Vim. I really am a, a Debian guy, um, although I usually will use Mint or Ubuntu. Uh, and I did see the original trilogy in theaters, all three of them. Uh, if you have to ask which original trilogy, I don't know that we can be friends, but... Uh, the uh, that also dates me as much as anything else. Um, I also need to tell you that I am all the while I do work for the US government, I am not representing any branch group, anything like that. Um, my these are just my views as a uh, as a private citizen uh, that is informed by my research and my um, uh, my uh, uh, my work that I do in this area. It does not reflect policy, preferences, strategy, anything. Um, however, while I'm not representing the federal government, I am representing Alabama, so roll tide. Um, again, these are the jokes, I hope you're laughing. Um, <clears throat> so one of the questions that a lot of people would, would ask uh, me in environments like this is, is there such a thing as information war or is there information war and are we losing? And that we can mean a lot of different things. I recognize that there are people from all over the world here, uh, perhaps physically all over the world right now, given um, that we're online. Uh, and the uh, and if you Google on uh, if you Google it, you're going to get a lot of different answers. This is some of the answers that came up on my machine, which was probably tailored to me. Um, but people are going to say, yes, we're losing, we're winning. And in fact, in the military, if you look up, uh, if you were to say the U.S. is losing the, the information war or the cybersecurity war, you would see a lot of people. It's become like a cottage industry 
of saying why these, uh, why the U.S. is so far behind. We're losing out to a lot of these other folks. Now, I cannot say for certain that the U.S. and its allies are not. However, in essentially every case that I see of these um, claims, they focus on military or military-like uses. And so if you spend enough time around national security, cybersecurity folks, they will talk a lot about um, cyber attacks and infiltrations. They'll, they'll use the words of airstrikes and, and espionage. And that's true. That's not wrong. Um, and of course, the military does use information. And so it's not strange that we would start using the verbiage of information uh, in the military when we think about national security. But cybersecurity and information are not a subcomponent of the military. And in fact, they're much broader than this. So many of you may have heard, or many of you may, may have not he have heard of the taxonomy of dime, not this dime, but it is the, uh, the dime that has a, uh, it, it is a way of thinking about national power. And in that national power, you have diplomacy, information, military, and economic power. Those are the four components of national power in this taxonomy. Uh, and that's how the U.S. and many other countries think about it. It comes up all the time in foreign policy discussions. And you'll note that military is part of it, but economic, diplomacy, and information are co-equal parts of that. And so, you might want to ask the question, well, how do these different components of power create national power? Um, well, one of the reasons we think about the military so much is because it is the military that creates effects. And I want to broaden this out here because in the dime taxonomy, we use military because if it weren't military, it wouldn't fit into dime. Uh, but what we really mean is instrumental power, the power to do things. So it may or may not be the military. And in fact, some of the things that the U.S. military or NATO militaries do will be done by other organizations. And sometimes organizations in these other countries will do what is done by the military elsewhere. So uh, for example, the FBI in the US, and I believe it's MI6 is counterintelligence. Those are both civilian agencies. In some countries, that would be, uh, that would be handled by the military. Um, and the ability to create uh, effects is military power. And so given that a lot of times we're talking about effects, resisting effects, it makes sense to think about the military. But they're in power, economy, the economic power does a lot as well. The economy, how large our economy determines how much effects, how many effects a state or a government can create. So if you are in a rich country uh, like the US or China, Great Britain, and actually even Mexico, comparatively on the world stage, the state, the government has a lot of um, nuclear, uh, not, not nuclear, I'm sorry, uh, a lot of uh, power to uh, an ability to do a lot of things that a comparatively poor country uh, might not have. Diplomacy is interesting because what it does is it shapes where you need to have these effects. In general, you want to have lots of allies and few enemies, and then you can conserve your effort where you need to using your economic and military power and information, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, so that you aren't expending it anywhere. And also diplomacy is a way for countries that maybe are not that powerful inherently to 
um, punch above their weight class. Uh, and so we see a lot of smaller European countries because they're members of NATO have taken on an especially important role. Uh, in this context, Estonia is notable because they are have worked their way into becoming one of the more important partners in NATO for cybersecurity. Uh, and that is, yes, they have a good economy and they have a competent military, but that is diplomacy working in their favor. But information, information power itself, that affects how efficient everything else is. It, it changes efficiency. And so let me, oh, dang it, this is not the, the new order didn't come through. So how does information create efficiency? Well, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, one is that if you're of my generation, uh, and we'll, my kids just had an 80s holiday or an 80s dress-up day, and so we'll stick with that theme, uh, maybe you wanted to go to the mall and be excellent to each other. And the, if you were going to do that, you had to call on your phone, hope your friends were there on their phone at their landline, um, arrange a time and place to meet at the mall, and go there. And if you changed anything in the interim, well, you're out of luck. You just could not move on the fly. You would, you would either have to go there and get uh, your friends together and say, actually, let's go see a movie instead of hang out at the mall. And then you could re-vector. Re, re well, because of cell phones, which are not cybersecurity per se, but they do lubricate the process of information. They strengthen information power. Most people today don't even bother coordinating when and where they're going to meet outside of uh, broad, uh, we'll meet around this time and uh, go to this place. And they do that coordination on the fly, which is so much more efficient because if something changes, if someone comes, you want to do something different, you want to meet somewhere else, you end up, uh, you can change that on the fly. and You don't have to spend all the time of going, meeting up making a decision, going elsewhere, meeting up, making a decision. And that's actually reflects itself, replicates itself with oil tankers. Um, before radio, oil tankers would leave where they were going uh, from and go to where they were going to, the people who were going to buy oil. And if the price was not good at the place they were going to, well, tough. You would show up and you'd sell your oil. Uh, now, not only do we have radios, which can communicate with tankers, which that started fairly early on, but we now have computers that can figure out where the various prices are and how far the tankers are from their location on the globe and whether it's worth it to re-vector them to another market or not. And this has made the oil market much more efficient. It makes it such that the prices propagate out relatively quickly across the market. And when prices drop, that's great. When prices rise, not as great. Uh, although realistically, when the market is inefficient, what that made for was expensive, more expensive oil than it needed to be. What this means, or when we start thinking about information as information power, this means that the government is not the biggest player. And in fact, there are much, many, many large players that are going to have larger impacts on the information environment uh, than you uh, than anything the government could possibly do. And I've picked four fairly large companies here that you will have all recognized because of their logo, but it's, uh, there are lots of small companies. There's lots of just individual groups that are going to have more effect than most government operations on, on, on a daily basis. And in the aggregate, things outside the government are much more important to information power than anywhere else. Um, and this is important when you think about people talking about the relative power of the United States or its allies uh, and or its competitors, uh, what is not happening in the government that 
is happening elsewhere. And often it's things that are outside the government that are more important. To put a very fine point on it, within the last month, I've had several conversations where people have claimed the U.S. is not doing this. And I have said, no, the U.S. is doing it. It is happening at Purdue. And I have no specific programs that are occurring at U Purdue University that are forwarding information and moving the way that we process information forward. And universities are a big part of this, uh, just, just generally. Another important issue is that information is something that is vital to free markets. In fact, free markets are information. Price carries information. And importantly, having free information allows markets to thrive. Um, it's another talk altogether, one which I do give, but the role that markets play in innovation and the role that innovation plays in economic growth is almost impossible to overstate. If you go back to starting in 1950, when we start seeing things like the development of the transistor uh, and integrated chips and so on, information uh, innovations uh, have led to propagation of information and innovative growth across the market uh, and accounts for enormous, almost incalculable amounts of economic growth that we would not have expected otherwise. Um, but it's important to think of what makes up the information space. So I'm talking to a group of people who are interested in information security. And of course, information security touches everything, but it also has different, it, being about information, it has different groups that it is associated with in a, in a qualitatively different way. Uh, and that in that information space, not only is the relationship, the, the support that uh, cybersecurity provides to something like, uh, say, an oil company, to stick with the oil theme, but also there is a shared mission, a shared sense of uh, of uh, a shared way of doing things because information is core and central to uh, the mission of these other groups. And so think about education. Education is teaching people how to onboard information. Uh, and cybersecurity does that as well. And in fact, a lot of a cybersecurity effort is educating other people. Unsurprising, because this is all within the information space. Journalism. Again, a lot of the reports that you might read from cybersecurity look like journalism. Journalism is processing a, a, information that's occurring in the moment, and they're trying to get things out as fast as possible. Uh, and the same is true with cybersecurity. Uh, the entertainment and gaming. It is amazing to me to see how much overlap there is between gaming, cybersecurity, and information. And I will just leave it at that. Um, but gaming is one of the largest portions in the information economy today. Uh, I have uh, the value of gaming companies and, and the gaming assets of major information companies, of which almost inf every information company you would think of has a gaming division today, uh, is, is tremendous and outstrips uh, a lot of other forms of entertainment. Most importantly, cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is what allows this information space to exist. It allows everything to take place. So to give you a few examples, um, in the market space, cybersecurity, uh, when we, if we think about the three, the CIA model of cybersecurity, um, the, the confidentiality, the integrity, and the access that cybersecurity should provide for, um, 
companies as they are pursuing their economic best interests uh, relies very heavily on cybersecurity. So for example, if you have um, uh, proprietary information, uh, uh, intellectual property, IP, and you spend a lot of money on that IP, you don't want that leaking out. And one of the major ways in which that leaks out is cybersecurity, uh, cybersecurity violations. Hackers will get in and steal things. Now, of course, it's not the only way, and that's not a new problem, uh, but it is a new way that cybersecurity is supposed to deal with. Similarly, information decays uh, or uh, degrading information or preventing people from getting it. This is all something that is in the cybersecurity realm. And it is noteworthy that in governments, uh, the groups that take care of cybersecurity defense and cybersecurity offense are not usually as separate as you might think, in part because protecting, uh, protecting these things that are important uh, for, say, the economy or for uh, social development or any of these other things um, is not, it's very closely associated. And of course, uh, you guys know that better than uh, anyone else. So why should you care that information is a portion of national power? Why should it matter? Well, on one level, it's because people, when they say, oh, we need to have cybersecurity because it goes uh, to the economy or because it protects our military operations. Well, that's true. And it's a good thing that people are thinking about that. But it is also a source of power in the information realm unto itself. But again, why should you care whether it's a source of national power? Well, International competition, and and to be honest, you guys should have seen this coming. I work for the Air Force, uh, and you know, international competition is something that we we talk about a lot, and it's something that you have seen in the news a lot, most likely. Um, in, an important thing that people who don't work in foreign policy or have a background in international relations may not fully understand, but it's actually not that is not that controversial, is the role in which. Uh, the strength of a country, of the government and the country from which you are in, reflects a lot of the interests that you have. Even if you don't like your government, even if you don't uh, like certain policies, you're almost always better off being in a strong country. Uh, having strong, uh, being in a strong country, that country is able to protect the interests of its citizens uh, or subjects on the international stage. It's able to pursue the interests of its citizens or subjects on the international stage. There's a reason why a lot of the preferences of, of Apple and Google and Microsoft are written into international treaty and the preferences of uh, whatever company in uh, Egypt or um, Zimbabwe, we'll pick on poor Zimbabwe, uh, are not. Uh, it's because the United States is a very powerful country. And a big portion of that is information power. And so when you are out there um, working on power, cha changing and affecting information power, uh, you're actually affecting international relations per se. And so, well, great, you might say, is this, so we've got people who are out there using cybersecurity to make us rich and powerful and grow the economy, whatnot. So is that just the way that everybody's doing things? Well, no. And I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate, but it is real. Um, the way that the role that information plays in national strategy, government policy is a result of government choices, 
uh, the choices that they make about what they're going to use the information to optimize for. So remember that information can increase efficiency, but it can't increase efficiency universally. It would be nice if it could, but it can't. Uh, and it's because of policy choices. So let's imagine that you have a government that chooses, or even in a circumstance, that it's going to try to optimize for the military or instrumental power. What that, why that is attractive is that when you are optimizing for military power, instrumental power, internationally and domestically, you get to use power in the way that you like. Uh, and hopefully you are making good strategic choices that allow you to outmaneuver your, your adversary, your competitors. And I think that you've probably heard people talk about this. We're getting outmaneuvered in cyberspace. Well, it could be because people are optimizing for military or instrumental power. However, the problem with uh, optimizing for military or instrumental power is that it is inherently hostile to free information and therefore hostile to markets, which also makes it favor weak information security. And I'll tell you why this is real quickly. So if you think about an organization that is trying to control information uh, so that it can operate uh, uh, in, in as it chooses, it's got a lot of incentives to do that. It doesn't want its secrets to leak out, uh, but it does want to know what everyone else is doing. And so, the if you are already opting into a system where you're trying to when you're where your organization is choosing to uh, make the strategic decisions as, as uh, internally as possible, well, a lot of the the controls of information security writ large. And by the way, when I say weak information security, I mean general, not theirs. They want to lock their information security down. Um, writ large is not very appealing. Uh, you want you want your competitors domestically and overseas to have as weak information security as possible. However, if you rely on economics, if you optimize for economic growth, well, you're relying, you're betting the farm, so to speak, that your economy will grow faster than others can outmaneuver you. This is fundamentally the argument that you see in liberalism going back to uh, you know, the 17th, 18th centuries, Adam Smith and John Locke and what have you. Um, this makes it, it, uh, uh, governments that optimize for econ economics, well, they have to be friendly for free markets. That's how they're doing it. And therefore they need free information. Markets make and use information. If you're going to have markets, you've got to have free information. And therefore, it is in their best interest to have strong information security generally, because the, uh, the needs of the public to have information security, be able to control their own uh, confidential information, uh, but still gain access to what they should, you know, what should be public. Well, that is uh, very attractive to a, uh, uh, to a government that chooses to optimize on economics. Um, what this, in simpler terms perhaps, is if you want to use power to do something, you want to control information and have maximum insight into what everybody else is doing, but by controlling that information, you're going to sacrifice economic growth. However, if you want to control the economy, if you want to grow your economy, you've got to open up information freedom as, as much as possible while simultaneously protecting privileged information. Um, but by so doing, you're allowing a lot of tumult, a lot of conflict to occur and, and probably, oh, 
probably not going to be able to use power as uh, strategically as someone who's controlling information. And uh, you don't even have to think of this as a national government policy. You will see this play out in countries, uh, in democratic countries, which generally optimize for economic growth. Um, but when they decide that they need to do something, they lock information down uh, and they, or people will argue uh, for controlling information as much as possible, because in order to make things happen, uh, in order to keep secrets, in order to um, control, uh, exercise control over battle space, you've got to control the information because information is power, power unto itself. Um, and so this is where you come in. And this is the famous Kirchner poster. And this is not me recruiting you into military, because I just said the military is only a small part of the government is only a small part. Um, but we're really, really early in this process. And there are a lot of things that we have not thought all the way through. And Unfortunately, the overlap between people who understand international politics and cybersecurity is very narrow. Um, and there are many times when cybersecurity idiosyncrasies will matter for foreign policy, and especially should matter for foreign policy, because we, again, are thinking about how this affects information power. And just to give you a very specific example, um, when we have zero-day problems, um, things that that come out that imposes a cost on the economy but it also imposes a cost on our ability to process information because it forces us to shuffle all kinds of things people are repositioning uh, economic uh, assets as they uh, deal with cybersecurity challenges people are reassessing the risks that they're willing to take um, and it interacts with the world at large so you have problems that arise in foreign policy that can cause and as we have seen precipitated out cybersecurity problems as with uh, Russia and Ukraine several times now um, so there is this massive interaction of foreign policy and power um, but it's not completely well thought through because we just haven't had time. And I recognize that if you talk about on the scale of cybersecurity, uh, it will sound like, oh man, the internet's been around for, you know, in its current form, at least 20 years, you know, in, in any form at all, maybe 40 or 50, you know, it's a very well-developed technology. And while that is true on the scale of international politics, it isn't. Um, we just don't have enough um, time to think about, or we have not had enough time to think and collect information. And so there is a lot of room for people to make a real uh, intervention here by thinking deeply uh, and uh, considering what is going on. And what that implies in this case is thinking about the interactions between the information space and the other spaces. So when the time comes, and it will come in some country where there is some kind of national security threat that people think is really a big deal, uh, think a second 9-11 or the invasion of Ukraine, and the question will come, should we turn off the internet or should we do some other, take some other decisive action that we think will improve our security, our ability to use information or our ability to use power instrumentally? Well, in order to make that consideration very uh, reasonable, people have, have to have some place to start to think about the other instruments of power. Um, 
And because we do that, we think about what it will cost us when we impose economic sanctions to achieve military outcomes. We think about what it will hurt uh, if we think about, uh, if we do something that is offensive to other countries uh, and therefore causes us to lose allies. We need to put information at the that same pedestal. We need to think about the damage that, or, or the advantages that using each of these other instruments of power can inflict on information and how using information is um, it can help those other instruments of power by using it strategically. Uh, and I wish that I had good news that there's just tens of thousands of people who are thinking about this. And in some ways there are, there absolutely are. Uh, but the field is so open that it's there, I will say frequently, I could assign a master's thesis to every single student for my entire career and never duplicate topics. There's just so much, uh, so much research to be done. And if you think you want to do this, well, give me a call. Let's, let's, let's talk about it. These are my emails. Um, the, uh, the best one to get me is probably the .edu email. The Proton Mail is at the bottom. Uh, and I'm, uh, I tried to, and I succeeded at leaving some time for some questions and answers, uh, a little extra time for some Q&A, uh, because I know that this is a field outside what Sirius may normally cover. Um, but that said, it, uh, what are your questions and, and how can I, what I can answer for you? Hey, David, uh, check in here and I don't see any questions. Um, attendees, yeah, if you could, uh, if you, oh, there's one that came in here. Um, let's see, how do you think about the People's Republic of China's lockdown of information compared with their impressive economic growth? So there's a lot of ways that I can answer this question. And I'm going to cheat just a little bit and tell you that my first job in the US Army was as a Chinese linguist. And so uh, when I focus on geography, I focus on China a lot. Uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And people will often bring this up and it's perfectly reasonable to talk about China because China has experienced enormous economic growth. However, um, China's, uh, China's economic, the first answer to that is China's economic growth is not as impressive as you might think. Now it is enormous unto itself, but China's per capita GDP is about the, the global average. Uh, so what that means is that um, China has, has definitely come a long way in its development, but a lot of the size of their economy is because they have so many people. And once you have that many people um, making any, you know, any a single dollar a year in GDP uh, improvement, uh, it really moves things forward. There's, uh, so what some of what you're seeing is the fact that you may have heard the Chinese discuss the century of humiliation. And it depends on who's talking when they think that century ended. Um, but basically from about 1840s to about 1979, there were there was just basically constant catastrophes befalling China. Uh, and so I'll, just stopping that from happening was a lot of economic growth. So that was that that's a bit of a cheat, but I'm going to move uh, a little bit more in this direction. 
with that. Um, what China has done is they have led the way in trying to thread the needle. So what my dissertation was about and what I have researched uh, or what got me into this was the use of information for social control. Um, so the if you're going to try to use social control, one of the things that you can do is uh, uh, get as much granular information as you possibly can. Um, and China has done that. So if you look at the way that they um, that they opened up to the internet, which they did relatively late. Um, the, the internet first started taking uh, hold around 2000. There were, there were sites before then, but the, um, they at first opened up pretty much unrestricted. But when I say unrestricted, it was only the fairly wealthy who could get the internet uh, and people who are connected. And then almost immediately, they began uh, a, pr a process of censorship. Uh, and so the censorship regime uh, is intended to choose what is not economically useful and allow and, and block that if it's politically threatening uh, and allow what is economically useful through. Uh, and so their lockdown regime is uh, uh, it's, it's trying to thread the needle. Uh, and to a certain extent, they have succeeded. However, uh, since Xi Jinping has uh, become uh, the, uh, the, uh, the chairman of the Communist Party in China, there has been a qualitative shift in the way that uh, China handles its um, cybersecurity and its information openness. Uh, I saw it when I was visiting China. It is very noticeable. Um, the, there is, I, I would not expect to see the same level of economic growth in China going forward as this information policy changes. Um, and the leadership of the party are signaling that they don't expect it either uh, with uh, proclamations about how, um, uh, how there's going to be 10 years of economic stagnation and, and, and things like this through their mouthpieces that are out in, the, in society. Um, it is, uh, you know, I'm open to the idea that, you know, I'm just wrong. Um, but, the, you know, because that's always a possibility, I could always be wrong. Um, but once you start looking fairly closely at each of these cases, you can see that hmm, actually information flows, the more that it flows, even in China, the better off their economy is. The more they restrict it, the harder it is to get things done. Great. Uh, yeah, we have another question here. Um, what are your thoughts on US Cybercom drawing on some of the more traditional information operations psyops folks into their planning process and operation cycle, combining those instruments of power on the national strategic level? So there's, um, uh, I'll, I'll add a disclaimer, uh, two disclaimers here that I know a lot of these guys. <laughs> Uh, but that I don't know any secrets. So what I'm saying here is is just uh, based on you know the people that I know uh, and the uh, familiar conversations that we've had. Um, but the so my sense is that a lot of what we're seeing is is a function of uh, the fact that we're just really early in the process. Um, it, it's we're we're sort of at the point where. Uh, Socrates and Plato were thinking about politics in general 3,000 or 2,500 years ago. Um, 
you know, there's, we don't have this uh, real enormous reservoir of ideas to draw upon. And so naturally people look around and say, well, how is this like that? And, and we're, we're seeing a fair amount of that. And so people are, are thinking about uh, psyops and, uh, and uh, information intel, uh, uh, intel uh, as, as a starting point. Now, that said, there is a risk uh, implied in what I was saying, which is if you mix the two different um, instruments of power inappropriately, you can really run into problems uh, because the objectives or the strengths of those instruments of power are um, really challenging. And where we can see, where we can imagine this happening is sort of the traditional uh, warning uh, for democratic governments. You keep standing militaries out of politics. Uh, that's uh, what they're really saying is that we, we need you to not mix the instruments of power here. Uh, the, the structure of a military is antithetical to the operation of democratic governments. Uh, to the extent that people take that consideration into heart to heart. Uh, and the folks that I know really do. Um, I think that it's it's a reasonable starting point. Um, but I think that it is also important to very carefully weigh the role that information plays in democratic society and the relationship that the military has to that democratic society. Because if you start overstepping those bounds in information, or if you start overstepping it in uh, economics, essentially the, uh, the, the warning that uh, Eisenhower made in his second inaugural or second inaugural address against the military industrial complex was about the military playing too large of a role in the economic uh, instrument of power. Uh, you can get crosswise and it can be a, it, it can be a political challenge uh, to overcome. I can see that question. I'll just go ahead and read it. Yeah, How sure. does misinformation play into cybersecurity? So there's there's two ways in which misinformation plays into cybersecurity. Um, one is that if you can get access to good information, like legit information, it can help you uh, craft better misinformation. Uh, so for example, if you have access to actual conversations between uh, uh, foreign powers, uh, leaders in foreign powers, and you know what they're actually talking about, when you go to craft your misinformation, the things that they have held secret that people will, that people who know will take to be legitimate, um, they, they will, uh, that it, it's, it's, um, it's difficult to fake those secret conversations and those secret concerns. So imagine uh, that two, uh, the president of the United States and the prime minister of Great Britain were having talks about, um, well, how about natural gas shipments? And they're very concerned about natural gas and that a foreign power of some kind were to come along and say, well, we want to influence this. Um, now, outside of this, uh, outside of this particular context, it would be fairly obvious. Everybody would be like, well, of course, they're thinking about natural gas. But say five years ago, nobody knows that they're thinking about natural gas as a, a primary issue, and it's only happening in back-channel communications. Well, then when you go to make your misinformation, you can you can put that truth in there, and it it gives it verisimilitude. Um, another thing is is that if you've had a cybersecurity breach, it makes mis misinformation much more credible. So uh, I was actually surprised that for the most part, at least as far as the ca campaigns uh, acknowledged, that um, the, the stuff that was released uh, uh, from the uh, John Podesta emails was mostly legitimate. Uh, at least as far as as far as they have said. So it, it's not like they released 90 
90% uh, were actual emails that he sent and 10% were things that, that somebody had made up. But knowing that there had been the breach, it was very plausible that these things that you could have done that you could have <laughs> you could have put out like, hey, here's this email that we found. And in fact, when you have uh, credible breaches of any kind, uh, it raises the potential for misinformation or it may, raises the, the purchase that misinformation might have. Um, I will add this, however, the best misinformation or the best disinformation is real. Uh, if you there, there are things that. Um, the, the closest that we can, we've ever come to having information alone causing a war is probably the Zimmerman telegram. Um, there were other things at stake there. Uh, that was real. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't know that a misinformation campaign by the British uh, would have, have worked in the same way. Um, the next closest for misinformation was probably the Spanish American war. Um, but the main did blow up. And so, you know, and so the, 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 the cases uh, to say that it wasn't the Spanish, I mean, it was, it turns out it wasn't as uh, based on the latest science. Um, but it, it's, you know, plausibility and, and real information that's, that's very effective, uh, missing, uh, very effective in, in an, in a public and a free information environment. So uh, this, any suggestions on places to go for research questions that need answered that can help impact U.S. government policy as it relates to cyber? So in general, uh, there's two ways to find uh, research questions. One is through the literature and two is through the world. So literature is you go and you read what people are writing about uh, uh, and, and say, well, here's a question that hasn't been answered, right? So uh, we figured out these seven points about um, encryption. We need to know this eighth. Uh, I'm going to answer the eighth. It's a perfectly legitimate way to go. For the most part, I think that you're going to have more success affecting policy looking at the world. What things do we see in the world that don't make sense otherwise, right? And so the, um, the and just from a, a pragmatic perspective, I would try to combine whatever your, your actual strengths are, uh, your natural advantages with um, with what you look at. And that's going to happen in some ways naturally. Uh, but if you're a coder and, you, uh, and you're really good at, you know, say doing um, uh, big, big data type analysis, well, uh, then find something, you know, but you're also pretty informed on policy. Well, the intersection between da big data and policy starts looking pretty good. You're, uh, and there's going to be a hundred questions there. And so just with your knowledge of what policy is, you could ask a variety of questions. And sometimes, and another way, another great place is in the recent past. So for example, um, five years ago, people were just absolutely banana pants about uh, net neutrality. It got reversed. Did anything change? Uh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> you know, there may be a there may be a study out there, but looking at well, something changed. Did we see other things change? What about uh, you know cyber attacks uh, originating from Russia in the context of the uh, Ukraine war? Are they different now than they were five years ago? Why? Th those are sort of like looking at the world and and finding questions, and they would definitely affect policy. Okay, it looks like we don't have any more questions, but uh, David, thank you so much. Uh, this was a great talk. Um, 
really, really appreciate it. Um, and if you're, you know, if you're ever up at Purdue, you're always welcome up here to come visit us face-to-face. Uh, -face. Um, we'd love to have you. So, um, well, and I, I'm sincere, uh, you know, if you, if you want, if people want to talk about things, actually, I, you know, I have a working relationship with Purdue university, which I got <laughs> invited here. Uh, uh, the, uh, there are several faculty that I, I work with there. And, um, if you have questions, if people have questions, they want to follow up with me on, let me know. Uh, and, uh, I, you guys are doing, you guys are doing great work. So great. Great. All right. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. So, um, thank you. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, Viewers, uh, we'll be back here at the same time, 4.30 Eastern time on Wednesday. Thanks, David. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye.